the Apostle Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and for also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Uh, well, imagine this scene. Uh, you're wandering through a beautiful meadow, and, and all you want is a place to spread out your blanket with some food and drink and have a picnic under the sunny sky while you listen to the birds singing. Isn't that a beautiful scene? However, there is something of which you are unaware. You are actually picnicking in the middle of a battlefield. And this battlefield is behind enemy lines. And you are surrounded by this enemy who only wants to kill you. Well, what do you think is going to happen in that scene? Well, you're not going to last long, probably. And this is a picture of many people's reality in our day and time. What we may not realize is that we do not live in a period of peace. We live in a time of war. And this is why Paul uses the language of battle in the text before us. He speaks of armor and wrestling or conflict with an enemy that is scheming. And he, and he says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. There is a spiritual battle raging around us, and each one of us are in the middle of it. And the battle is for your very soul. Too often the spiritual battle doesn't seem real to us. We don't even think about it and we're just like uh, a person picnicking on a battlefield. You know, maybe you're not aware that there is a spiritual battle. And that's because you know, there's a good reason for that. The, the spiritual battle can seem unreal because it's unseen. But in actuality, the unseen spiritual world is more significant than this physical world in which we live. But it's hard to believe that. We believe some lies about that that are perpetuated in our day and time, and, and I'm sure have been per perpetuated throughout history. We believe the lie, very popular lie, that says that the physical world is more real than the spiritual world. And, of course, it's easy to bind that lie. We can taste and touch and and feel things, and see things. But a person who believes that the physical world is more real than the spiritual world will place more importance on this present 
physical world with personal happiness than on the spiritual world and eternal blessing. And we also believe the lie that this physical world is permanent. You know, the younger we are, the more apt we are to believe that the physical world is permanent. But again, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Our lives tend to be dominated by the physical instead of the spiritual. We uh, think and deal with, on a regular basis, the things that can be seen or heard or touched and tasted. And we get caught in the urgency of this material world and we invest a lot of time and energy fretting over ourselves and our stuff. We work hard to make sure that we're comfortable and peaceful in this world And we tend to be materialistic and, of course, watching TV promotes this idea of materialism. You know, we need the latest gadget, we need this, we need that. And we want these clothes and that that car, etc. We focus on these things. And, like I said, it's like looking for a picnic on a battlefield. Paul Tripp says, the theme is everywhere in Scripture. The wise person lives for what cannot be seen. The fool lives to build another barn to store away what is perishing and useless in the world to come. The wise person longs for spiritual blessing. The fool craves physical reward. The wise person looks to eternity. The fool lives for the moment. Do we live with a physical focus, minimizing the significance of the spiritual world? Do we live with a a peacetime mentality? We're not at peace. In times of peace, people give themselves to you know, luxury and leisure and pleasure. They focus on their wants and desires. However, in times of war, especially if you think back to World War II times, people live with another focus. The factory that used to produce stereo system now makes electronic equipment uh, for, for, for battles. The assembly line that produced luxury cars now makes tanks. Young men go to military training instead of going off to school. See, war commands the focus not only of the professional soldiers, but the whole society as well. Scripture says that life is war. We need to have a wartime mentality. Because the battlefield is your heart. A very important territory to be had. The war is being fought on the turf of your heart. It is fought for control of your soul. Each situation you face every day is a skirmish in the war. Now, when we start talking about spiritual warfare and devils and demons and so forth, people start thinking about the weird, bizarre things that Hollywood has promoted in horror films. We're not talking about demon possession and exorcisms here. This is not about people's heads spinning around and speaking in creepy voices. If you look at our text, if you look at it where it lies in the whole book of Ephesians, you look at what he's been talking about, where Paul brings up this subject. You know, if you look at chapter 5 and chapter 6, the first part of chapter 6, he's been talking about the church uh, and the relationships within the church. And then he starts talking about the family, uh, marriages, husband and wife, children and parents, 
Masters and servants. We talked about work. This is where the battle is going on. You know, Paul's not just jumping here in verse 10 to a whole new uh, subject. You know, okay, husbands love your wives, uh, children obey your parents, the servants obey your masters. Oh, and by the way, there's a war going on. Uh, complete subject change. That's not a subject change. These everyday, you know, where we live, how we relate to one another, how we, how we relate in the church, how we relate at home, how we relate at work. I mean, that's the sum total of our existence, isn't it? If you cover those three places, there's not a whole lot of time we spend anywhere else than in those three places. That's where the battlefield is raging. And it's in the everyday, regular living of our lives that this spiritual battle is going on. There are spiritual implications in everything you do, in every normal situation in which you find yourself. Notice verse 13. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Everything, everything that you do, standing firm in the midst of this battle that you're in. We have to be... uh, aware that there's a war going on. And it's a very important war because it's about our hearts. And we can't relax and we must not forget that. We must fight that tendency that we have to be more worried about the world of the seen than about the world of the unseen. It's difficult, of course, as I've said, because the physical world is in our faith. It is urgent. It's where we live. But we have to ask ourselves what is really important in the grand scheme of things. Is it our peace and comfort in this world or our peace and comfort in the next world? Because what we do in this world dictates where we spend eternity in the next world. Is our priority treasure on earth or is it treasure in heaven? Is it the few years we spend on this earth or the eternity we spend in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth or in hell? And there's a saying, uh, you know, he's, he's too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. I don't know if you've ever heard that saying, but I think it's a, a not a true saying. I mean, I think there are people who are, who are out there and they're completely impractical. But it lends us to think that being spiritually minded or heavenly minded uh, somehow t- makes us out of touch with today. I think C.S. Lewis sums it up very well. He says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. We have a battle going on, fighting it all the time, and it's over control of our hearts. We also need to know who our enemy is. Not only is there a battle going on, and it's the turf is our hearts, but we have an enemy. His name is Satan. In 2006, it's hard to believe that that was almost a decade ago, so the numbers are probably even more uh, disturbing. In 2006, more than half of adults, 55% precisely, said that the devil or Satan is not a living being, but is a symbol of evil. And in 2006, 45% of born-again Christians even deny Satan's existence. And I've read some websites that claim to teach the Bible, 
but they deny the existence of Satan. They say the devil is simply symbolic of or a picture of evil. But the Bible clearly presents Satan as a fallen angel with a personality. He is called a he in Scripture. He tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. He speaks to God uh, in the book of Job. He tempts Jesus in the desert. This is a person in the Bible, and Jesus treats him like a person or a fallen angel. Jesus said of him in John chapter 8, He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is our enemy. We have two other enemies as well, the world and our flesh, along with Satan. We, we use that terminology a lot. The world, the flesh, and the devil. These are the three enemies of the Christian. Well, those two enemies, the world and the flesh, we can't solely say, the devil made me do it, like Geraldine said, Flip Wilson, if you remember that back in the 60s, 70s. The devil made me do it. No, it's not just the devil. Uh, the, all these three enemies work in conjunction with one another. This world is full of temptations, and we have a sin nature, a propensity towards sin. The devil and his legions use the world and our own desires against us. He convinces us to believe lies, and the world goes along with the lies and perpetuates the lies. For example, materialism, that our significance comes through the toys that we have. And his lies appeal to our flesh. Yes, we want those things. We want the creature comforts. We want to invest our time and energy into ourselves. So see, Satan is always scheming, using the world and using our flesh against us in this battle that we have. Now this can be frightening when we see that the devil schemes. That word uh, means, it has a, always has a negative connotation in the New Testament. The word is the word we get for method. He, he, is, he has a method about it. And, you know, we have a method sometimes, and it can be a good thing, but in the New Testament, having a method is a bad thing. It means to handle according to a plan, uh, to handle craftily, to deceive or distort, to try and, you know, he's scheming. He's working behind the scenes. He's, he's trying to trip us up. Now, this might disturb us and, and frighten us because we have this enemy, and he seems sometimes overwhelming, especially when he works in conjunction with the world and with our own flesh. But we can be assured that the Lord has not left us defenseless or without resources to be victorious in the battle. In 1 John 4, John reminds them, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Speaking of, of the devil. He who is in you, Christ, is greater than he who is in the world. So we have this battle. The battle is for our souls and our hearts. Uh, we have an enemy. It's very daunting. But we have resources to fight this battle. The Lord has given us his resources. The armor that he has put on and fought for us is also the armor that we put on. Christians must stand in this conflict using the weapons and armor provided. 
Now you can't help but notice here that Paul is very concerned that we stand. He uses the word stand in four different places in these ten verses. Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore. So standing is very important. Of course that's true in battle. We're standing, we're fighting against the foe. If we get knocked down... If a soldier gets knocked down, he's in trouble. He's on the ground, and he can easily, he's an easy, easy target there. But what does it mean to stand in a spiritual sense? How does one know if he or she is successfully standing? Of course, the opposite of standing is falling. How can a person know that he has fallen? If the battle is unseen in our hearts, how do, how do you measure success? What does it look like to stand or fall in the battle of the heart? Well, we might say, well, it's when we do the right thing, when we obey, when we're good, if we follow the rules, we refrain from sinful behavior, then we must be standing. Isn't the devil trying to get us to succumb to temptation and fall into sin? We might say that, but the Pharisees followed the rules. They were very moral. They represented the peak of moral behavior in the Bible. But Jesus criticized them more than any other group. Jesus affirmed that their outward behavior looked good, but his criticism was that they were rotten on the inside, in the heart. Where does the battle lie? It lies in the heart. They had lost that battle. So success in the spiritual battle cannot primarily be measured by our behavior. Let me stress the primarily in that sentence. Now don't get me wrong, behavior is very important. But the problem we have is that we can often engage in the correct behavior, but for the wrong reason. Sometimes we're motivated by guilt. You know, oh, well, I better do the right thing, or everybody, you know, or God's going to get me, or everybody's going to think bad of me. Uh, guilt, fear, pride. Uh, oh, well, I feel bad if I don't do the right thing. That, those are bad motivations. Christ died to remove guilt and fear. And sometimes we uh, obey just to manipulate God. Uh, I'm going to do this so God will like me. Or I'm going to do this so God will bless me. Those are bad motivations. We're trying to get God to be in our stead so that we can get him to do what we want him to do. Expect him to do what we want him to do. We're trying to manipulate God. We're actually putting ourselves in the position of God. I've done this... So you owe me that. Now I'm the person who's calling the shots. I'm deciding what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's bad. And God, I've done this for you, so you do that for me. A lot of times when we get angry with God, it's because we feel like we've done our part of the deal and God's not doing his part of the deal. The only thing we don't realize is that he hadn't made a deal with us like that. He's God and we are not. So the battle... Does, uh, does exhibit itself in our behavior, but we have to be careful of that. Why are we obeying God? Are we motivated by guilt or fear or the desire to manipulate God or pride? Or are we motivated by the gospel? Are we motivated, have, has our hearts been captured by Christ? And, and are we mindful of what he's done for us 
And does that encourage us to serve this one who has served us in such a great way? The gospel must be our motivation. It is impossible to participate in the spiritual struggle if you do not have the ability to think through your faith, the ability to take the gospel and apply it to your life, to be reminded of what Christ has done for you and then pattern your life not just on Christ's example, but on the grace that you've experienced through Christ. You know, you have been given much by Christ, and that should fill you with a desire to love and serve Him. It's one reason why you come to the table. It's another opportunity to have the gospel, to see what Christ has done, remember what Christ has sacrificed for us, so that we can be strengthened for the fight, for the battle. It's not enough just to know a bunch of stories that the Bible has or even to memorize a bunch of Bible passages. Sometimes they can just be unconnected biblical factoids to us. Do we have a distinctively biblical view of life and how do we know how to apply the gospel in the way that we live our lives? When we come to a temptation, are we refraining because... It would make us look bad, or are we seeking to please the one who did not please himself, but laid down his life for us? There's a difference there. And God has given us resources to stand in this manner. Gospel-motivated discipleship. We have the belt of truth. When Satan comes at us with lies, we have the truth of God's word to protect us. It's the truth. And if we don't know it, We can't use it. If we've never experienced the truth, we can't use it for our own defense. How can we be aware of lies unless we know the truth? We have to know God's word. Putting on the belt of truth means studying and applying scripture, especially the gospel that it it so clearly proclaims. The breastplate of righteousness. When Satan accuses, which is what he does day and night before God, Revelation 12, you can take the time to read that later. Uh, he, he accuses them day and night before God. That's what Satan does. Accusing us. If you've got the breastplate of righteousness, his accusations fall flat. Who can bring any charge against God's people? God is the one who justifies, Paul tells the Romans. The breastplate of righteousness is trusting in Christ's righteousness. So when Satan says, look at what that that guy did. Look at what Tim did. No, Satan, he's covered. He's depending not on his own righteousness, he's depending on Christ's righteousness. So he's protected against the devil. The breastplate of righteousness. Shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The readiness, the state of being ready for action. See, the readiness of the gospel of peace is, is shoes for your feet. It is what makes you... Uh, It's what takes you places and accomplishes things. It's your your underlying motivation. Are you motivated by the gospel? Does it give does it give you uh, uh, wings, as the commercial says? Red Bull gives you wings. Well, the gospel should give you wings. It should propel you into a life of service to the Lord, to get into action for God because of what He's done for you. The shield of faith. When Satan attacks with his lies, it's one thing to have the belt of truth to know the truth. It's another thing to believe it, to say, you know what? God's Word says this. Satan is telling me that. God's Word says this. I'm going to believe God. 
That's the mistake Adam and Eve made. Satan said, did God really say this? Well, that apple does look good, or the fruit does look nice, and it will make me like God. So I'm going to do... They stopped listening to what God said, and they listened to what Satan said. They didn't take up the shield of faith and put their trust in what God said. And then the, the, the helmet of salvation. Crowning it all is salvation. The deliverance promised by the Lord. God will deliver his people. He's overcome. He's already won the war. And if you don't have that helmet of salvation on your head, then you're exposed. The sword of the Spirit. Now we're getting offensive. We have a weapon. The truth of God's word is not only defensive armor, as we have mentioned, it's also an offensive weapon. The lies are answered by Scripture. You see Jesus in the wilderness. When he was tempted by Satan three times, how did he answer Satan? All three times he quoted Scripture back to Satan. He took up the sword and wielded it against the devil. We need to know the word and use it. When, when we're faced with the temptations of the devil, to take up the Scripture and to answer those temptations with what God's word says. We have these resources we need to be aware of the, the battle and the resources that we have and to stand using those resources. Finally, the whole thing must be rooted in prayer. Actually, verse 18 uh, in the Greek is a new sentence. It's a new section. In our, in our translation, in the ESV, it uses it, as a, it, it just as a continuation of the sentence. But in the Greek, it starts a new one. And I think it, uh, it is a new and separate section that is connected to the whole thing. Prayer is very important. Notice the comprehensive alls. We are to pray in this battle all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, all requests. That's what the word supplication is. To be, uh, to, to that in keeping alert with all perseverance, to persevere in prayer and making supplication for all the saints, not just praying for ourselves, but for everyone. We're all in the same, we're all in the same army. We need mutual encouragement and we need to, Communicate with our commander. Can you imagine a battle? Especially, you know, you watch the old World War II movies. You know, communication was key. You were always trying to cut off the lines of communication of your enemy so that they couldn't communicate with their headquarters and they wouldn't know what was going on. Prayer is us communicating with, as our call to worship names him, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He is our commander. He is our king. And prayer is how we communicate with the headquarters. Uh, it's how we communicate with, with our leader. All times, with all prayer and supplication, persevering in it, praying for ourselves and one another. Prayer is vitally important in this battle because it's, it's the, the lines of communication between us and the Lord. Well, the table here gives us strength for the battle. The table, the Lord's table. This is the opportunity for us to come and be reminded of the gospel once more. Because we are in a battle, and God has given us this provision. Uh, this is a respite in the battle, to stop and to rest in Christ, and to be strengthened by what he's done for us, and let that propel us into uh, the next phase of the battle. Going back home, uh, going to work this week, uh, coming back to church the next week, the fight that goes on over the turf of our souls on a daily basis. May the Lord strengthen us as we prepare our hearts to come to his table. Let's join our voices together, standing together and singing, Tis the Christ. <laughs>